You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Wise, Life as Gift, Not Gain. In this series from Ecclesiastes, we'll learn to see life as fundamentally a gift to receive and enjoy, not a hill to climb or a gain to achieve. This path of wisdom teaches us to live in the uncertainty and tensions of life under the sun. And now, hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 12. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declare that the dead who had already died and are happier than the living who are still alive. But better both is the one who has never been born, who has never, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name's Travis, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I grew up a couple hours north of here. And a number of years ago, uh, whenever I was 18, I worked at Indiana University in Bloomington. I didn't attend there. Uh, I didn't attend school there, but I did work there. I uh, had the privilege of being... uh, being one of the uh, third shift custodians and on the third shift moving crew. So it was, uh, it was a pleasure because whenever you're 18 and you don't have much but time and uh, you just spend all your time kind of doing what you want. And that's what I did in those days whenever uh, I was 18. I, I, well, I ate what I wanted, um, which mostly what I wanted was, we have a picture of what I wanted in those days. White cheddar Cheez-Its, I'm still not opposed to those, but, uh, but that's where I spent a lot of uh, my third shift nights uh, eating uh, white cheddar Cheez-Its, and then if you have something salty, you need to drink it. I would drink beer, but it would be uh, root beer. I wasn't a Christian, so I wasn't a Christian, so I didn't drink the other beer, but, um, 
So Stewart's root beer, sorry, that's a Christian freedom joke that didn't go over very well. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have done it. I was like thinking, I was like, I'm really going to get him with that one. I shouldn't have done it. It was like the spirit said, no, nah, it's a pretty bad joke. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, Stewart's root beer, that was, that was one of my drinks of choice. And um, so yeah, I would spend most of my time eventually in those days, eventually I would I found coffee, which I like to call the black eye of truth, but I didn't, I didn't include that. I was drinking root beer in those days. But, um, but I would spend a lot of my time when I wasn't working or I was on breaks, I would spend a lot of my time engaging in pseudo-intellectual ex, uh, exercises. And so I found, I found some poor guy who was selling all these books. But uh, yeah, these are a list of books. I think somebody on the internet still selling them if you have a hard time sleeping. But you got uh, books about philosophy and psychology, and, and what I was concerned about in those days, um, I was concerned about trying to understand the world. I knew there was something wrong. I knew there was something wrong with me. I knew there was something wrong with, with what I saw in the world. Um, but I didn't think that what was wrong in the world in some ways was me. I didn't think that it was necessarily my own kind of preoccupation with myself. I mean, even my intellectual or pseudo-intellectual pursuits were rooted in my own desire for answers for myself. Like, everything about my life at the time, whether it went from the snacks or it went from my intellectual pursuits, were kind of rooted in me. Even my friendships were rooted in me that I would eventually come to understand. But it was through one friend um, and, and this was a guy that I spent a lot of time with, and we used to talk about psychology and philosophy, and we had all kinds of pseudo-intellectual um, discussions. And I don't have a picture of my friend, but I have a picture that summarizes my friend's interests. So, peace, love, and goats uh, would summarize my friend's interests. He was a—I mean, I'll just say it this way—he was a hippie goat farmer. I mean, that's what he what he did. I mean, he he. Uh, during the day, he was living somewhere in nowhere, Brown County, and he was, yeah, was a goat farmer. He was probably farming other things um, as well. And then in the evening, he was spending time with me, and we were, talking, we were talking about whatever it was that I was interested in. And my friend was sitting to my right, your left, one time when we were in the break room. And uh, I was waxing and waning about all these books that I'd been reading and I spent all this time reading and I grabbed this nugget of truth. And I was saying like, if you put in the work, you can find the truth. And my friend was smoking a cigarette and he kind of stopped and he said, he said, my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes. And so John introduced me to this book and he said, that book, that book brings so much clarity to the world in just a short amount of time. And I thought, wow, I'm gonna to have to read this book. And so I wasn't a Christian and I went home and at the recommendation of another man who wasn't a Christian, I read the book of Ecclesiastes. And Pastor Jonah one time asked the question, have you ever read the Bible but the Bible read you? Like, have you ever read the Bible and it cut you so deeply, it exposed, as Hebrews would say, it exposes the very marrow and bones. I mean, it opens up your chest. And that's what happened to me. 
In fact, it so exposed my preoccupation, my self-occupation, my, my obsession with myself that I closed the book and said I'd never read it ever again. <laughs> Which, fast forward, just for the record, I have read it again. <laughs> but it brought so much clarity, and I wanted to be able to see and understand the world, and Ecclesiastes taught me that until my life dramatically changed, until I come to understand there is a God and he speaks and he understands the world and he sent his son Jesus, not only to help us understand, but to also provide us a way of living our lives. Then whenever we embrace maybe what we would call the fear of the Lord, when we embrace the fear of the Lord and we acknowledge that, that we in and of ourselves, we are not God and will never be God, and God will always be God. But if you give yourself to God and his ways, place your faith in his son, Jesus, then you can look into the world and then you can come to understand how it is that God has made the world and how you can live a life that is marked not by foolishness, which is rooted in selfishness, but a life of wisdom that's rooted in togetherness. And the, the writer of Ecclesiastes has that type of vision that there is a God that he speaks and his ways will bring freedom and clarity. Specifically in all aspects of our lives, but specifically with the way we relate to other people through work and through justice. And so it's with all these things in mind that I pray you hear God saying to you that us instead of me is the way the wise see the world. Like the main point of this message and the only thing I'm concerned that you get out of it is that us instead of me is the way the wise see the world. There's three ways that the wise see the world as it relates to us and not just me. First, through a compassionate vision of justice. First, through a compassionate vision of justice. Second, through an ambitious vision of contentment, through an ambitious version or an ambitious vision of contentment. And then third, through a cooperative vision of work. First, through a compassionate vision of justice. So Ecclesiastes 4 breaks down and you have these, you have these statements, I looked and I saw. So that would be in verse 1. I looked and then I saw, that's in verse four. And then again, I looked and then I saw, and that's in verse seven. So you have these three times where the preacher looks out and he sees something going on. Look here with me at the first of these, beginning in verse one. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead, who, all, who had already died, are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So the writer looks out and he sees something that's going on. Here he describes it as oppression. In the scriptures, oppression can be uh, some sort of injustice, some sort of way that people have been mistreated. 
There are two basic motivations according to scripture for whatever oppression is. The two basic motivations are greed and the abuse of power. So greed, having, wanting more of what you already have, money and or power, or then the abuse of power. Here, the preacher looks and he sees people and he, he notices and he repeats it over and over. They have no one to comfort them. But do you notice that he's close enough, his vision is clear enough that he can see that they are crying and there's no one to come alongside them. And so he, he looks at this and he recognizes that that's a problem. One, that, that society was organized in such a way that it, it made some people's lives harder as opposed to others. And so the way oppression would work in the scriptures is there's an acknowledgement that some people have, some people are, the society is structured in such a way that some people have power and it pushes downward on people on the bottom. And so the victims of oppression, according to scripture, would be the poor or the widow or the orphan or um, the foreigner or the sojourner, somebody who's not in that land. And so here he sees that something's going on. He doesn't name it. Something's going on, and he can see that they're crying, and there's no one to come alongside him. And so it causes him to say that this is, this is a grave evil. And then he makes a couple of statements, and these are the types of statements that really trip people out um, about the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, these are all the evils that are done under the sun, and it'd be better. It'd be better if these people would have already died, or if even better than that, they had never been born. And people read those kind of things, and they're like, well, that's not very positive. I mean, that's really bothersome. One, it would bother you if you knew how often the scriptures will even use that phrase. It's not limited to Ecclesiastes. Job uses that phrase. And, and, and Jeremiah will say such things, that it'd be better if this person was never born. But what they're doing is, is they're trying to understand that statement detached or divorced or separated from the phrase that comes up over and over in Ecclesiastes, which is life under the sun. What does that mean? Life under the sun is Ecclesiastes' shorthand way of saying a, a life marked by selfishness, a life that is lived without reference to God, a life that is lived as if God does not exist. That's not Ecclesiastes' view. In fact, Ecclesiastes looks at this and he says, this ain't right, this is problematic for a variety of reasons. But there are those that live in the world as if God does not exist. There are those that live in the world as if the only thing we have is this closed box that we could say is the universe and we're all living underneath the sun. But Ecclesiastes recognizes that for the Christian, they live a life and we say that, that the world isn't a closed box, that there is life beyond the sun, that there is a God that we cannot see, but he is our, he's our reference point. He's our north point. He's our anchor. He's the one that we evaluate our lives by. And so it roots us and it grounds us, but it also provides us clarity with how we view the world. And so because there is a God because he's our creator, 
because he's made people after his image, when people are suffering, for whatever reason, it moves Christians and it causes them to take action. Think of our Lord Jesus. So think of the movement in Ecclesiastes and then think about the movement of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 9. Ecclesiastes looks, he sees that these people are having trouble. He is moved with compassion. Our Lord Jesus in Matthew 9, verse 36, says he had been ministering throughout all the countryside. And then he looks and he sees the crowds and his heart is moved with compassion because they are like sheep without a what? Without a shepherd. So there he sees, he is moved. And then our Lord Jesus will take action. I want to ask you, who do you see that's crying because of the pain that they're in? Like, who in your life can you see that is crying because of the pain that they are in? The Christian is able to look out and to see that there are some people in life who are going through a lot. And they are going through much as it is related to they have been mistreated in some way, shape, or form. It could be because of choices they have made. It could be because of choices they have not made. It could be that they have made poor choices and then whatever takes place and it makes their life harder. But the Christian, you see, looks at someone who is struggling and is moved with compassion, and they are particularly moved with compassion, so much so that Ecclesiastes says it twice, because they have no comforter, no one to come alongside them. Who do you know that has been mistreated? And do you see their tears? And do you know them? And will you see, and will you be moved, and will you take action? A few years ago, myself and Glenda Faith and Jordan Percival were all talking after a prayer meeting that Pastor Stephen leads. And one of the things we were talking about was just kind of all the atrocities in the world. There's injustice that takes place in the world, and it's all over the place. We shouldn't be surprised. We live in a world that is, that is stained by sin, right? And people don't love their neighbors as their, themselves. And one of the things that I said to them was, it is hard when you look out into the world if you are honest in what you're seeing, to know where to step into. Because there are so many places where evil is taking place. But I would say, to build off of what Pastor Jonah had said last week, I would say to you, pick one thing. Pick one thing to give yourself to. One, if you step into justice, I can assure you it's far more complicated than you realize. Two, so one, pick one thing. And two, give yourself to it for a long period of time and come to know those people and come to find out what their struggles are. For some of you, that may be that you're going to say, you know, look, I'm a Christian. And it's a pretty common command. One of the most common commands in the scripture is to help the poor. And what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to start giving my time to help the poor in whatever capacity that I can. Do you see the need and will you step into it? Will you be moved by it? So give yourself to it. For some of you, that means 
you're going to be moved to help the orphan. And so for some of you, you may become foster parents. For others, you don't need to become foster parents, but you can step into the need. Maybe you have the resources to fund adoptions or whatever that may be. Do you see the need and will you step into it? Because the wise recognize that life isn't merely about me and, and, and for that matter, my personal relationship with Jesus. Because God is a corporate God but I recognize that it's not merely about me, but the wise recognizes it's also about we. Second, through an ambitious vision of contentment. So as the passage moves, he moves from seeing injustice to seeing an issue related to work and, and material wealth. Look here with me, in ver beginning in verse 4. And I saw all the toil and achievement spring from one, one person's envy of another. And this too is meaningless in chasing after the wind. There he says that he starts seeing and he starts recognizing that some people, they get up in the morning to go to work and it's rooted in envy. Now, what is envy? Envy is a type of, of ambition. Envy is a drive that is rooted in, it's, it's rooted in the unhappiness of somebody else's happiness, basically. It's, it's rooted in being, looking at someone, their station in life, their position, their possessions, their family, whatever. It's looking at them and the happy life that they have and then all your happiness drawing up all your happiness evaporating because somebody else is happy. And Ecclesiastes recognizes some people get up and go to work because they're not happy. But if I can achieve that, if I can get that position, if I can get that vacation, if I can get that house, if I can get that car, if I can get whatever it is, then I will be happy. Envy has a way of motivating people. It is a type of ambition but it's an ambition that's gone awry and it's an ambition that is rooted, it's devastating, but it's rooted in the unhappiness at somebody else's happiness. And he says, look, this is, this is meaningless, this is foolish, this way of working is not gonna work out for you. And then, because the preacher is, is wise, he anticipates, it's like, okay, well, if the problem is ambition, then what we should do is just eradicate all ambition. Let's just all give up on this kind of drive to attain something in the future. And Ecclesiastes won't allow that to happen. And so in verse 5, he says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So what he says is that fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. And in case you're not one who takes naps, and I'm sorry for you if you don't, um, those who enjoy a good nap will fold their hands, whether behind your head or across your chest, whatever your conscience permits. But, but what he says is, is that there are those that are foolish who will say, no, 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 I'm not going to worry about work. I'm going to fold my hands. This is the, a, the biblical way of saying I'm going to be lazy. And he says here that they ruin themselves, which some of your translations say in a much less sanitized way. They end up eating their own flesh. 
what they do is they are so short-term in their focus, they are so selfish, but that selfishness is related to the right here and the right now, that they say, I'm not going to work. And I'm just going to rest. And consistently in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the wisdom books, they say that's foolish. How come? You have to understand in Ecclesiastes or in Proverbs, the wisdom books of the Bible, they view the world through the lens of Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, you have that God is the creator and he's made Adam and Eve and he gave them work to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over the earth. He says to Adam that he has given him the garden and you will tend to the garden. You will eat of all the fruit of the garden. And so you have these themes of work. And so it's foolish to give yourself to laziness because God's made the world in such a way that if you do work, you will be blessed. But Ecclesiastes doesn't stop at Genesis 1 and 2, but continues into Genesis 3, where our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned. And when they sinned, they made the world way harder than it needed to be. And one of the things that took place was work became cursed, according to Genesis 3.17. So God says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will work. And so Ecclesiastes acknowledges and recognizes that people have, apart from God and apart from his changing ways, they have a dysfunctional view of work. They have a dysfunctional way. And what they'll do is they'll work in such a way that they will destroy their own relationships. They'll destroy their own possessions and they'll destroy their own relationships. And so what he says is the issue is not necessarily ambition and the issue isn't necessarily rest but what we need is we need to work and rest and find contentment so that we can have healthy relationships. And so he says it this way in verse 6, better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes says the wise, they may have less, they have one handful versus the one with two handfuls. They have less materially, but they have more relational. Some of your versions may say one handful with peace versus two handfuls with strife. But do you see the comparison and the contrast? One with peace, two with strife. And so what the wise do is they recognize God has made me for work, but he's made me for relationships. And you can, have, you can have about anything in God's world, but you can't have everything because you're limited. As a man that I know, so as I said, I, I grew up a little bit north of here, and I, work, I grew up with a lot of farmers and factory workers. Um, some people were farmers, some people were factory workers, some of them were both. And one man was both. He had been poor at a very young age. And he said to himself, he'll never be poor again. And so he gave himself to work at the, the foundry, the local foundry, and he gave himself to work on his land, and he had a small farm. And his son is a friend of mine. And one of the things that his son has often said is that my dad, my dad will 
probably live a shortened life because he's ran his body into the ground. And in spite of all the medical procedures and whatever else, he, for all intents and purposes, he has a functionally broken back. And not only does he have a functionally broken back, he does have a beautiful place. And he's got a beautiful home. He's got a home that sits up on a hill and overlooks other hills and other fields and lives next to a river. And he lives next to his son and his nephew and his great niece and, and lives down the road from extended family members. But he also has, he, he also has a wife who, who hates him, wants to have nothing to do with him. And he also has ongoing strains and relationships with all his family because he's never going to be poor again. And he's lived and he's worked and he's found his being that way. And it's evident if you're around them to kind of see that. But one time it became really evident to me in a conversation that I had with him. I asked him, I said, how much, how much land do you have? And he said, I have 80 acres. And then immediately he pointed to the back side of his property and he said, the guy behind me has 20. And for years I've been trying to get him to sell me that 20 just so that I could have 100. Because, you know, 100 is much better than 80. And I could see in that moment that the man had ambition, still had ambition. He just had no contentment. And in the scriptures, you, you can have all kinds of things. It's not wrong to have. It's not wrong to look to achieve. It's not wrong to look to have a hundred acres, right? And God has the universe. He's got a lot of property. So there's at one level, nothing wrong with wanting property or for that matter, maybe wanting more space. But I, I would ask the question, what do you want the space for? And what are you willing to give up? Because you can get whatever it is that you're striving for, you can get it. But what are you going to give up to get it? And are the people around you worth giving up for just a little bit more of what you may already have? You can have two handfuls of whatever it is that you already, you probably already possess. But who are you willing to give up for it? This passage, this reality confronts us that we have to make people a priority in our life. Like, we have to work in such a way that we prioritize people. We, we can't neglect people for the sake of possessions. Because the wise recognize it's foolish if you have everything. What does Jesus say? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses his own soul. It's not going to get you anything. But the wise say, look, I can work, and I can work hard, and I can have, but, but let me have for the sake, for the sake of others. And, and I, don't want, I don't want to work so much that everybody wants to have nothing to do with me. To have less for the sake of more relationally is the wise way to live in the world. And in addition to this, this passage confronts us with with the two lies that are being presented. Laziness is a lie. 
You can have short-term rest, but you know, if, if, if you're, you got in an argument and then you went to go take a nap, it's probably not resolved once you get up. I mean, maybe it will be, right? If you have conflict before the nap, you're probably going to have conflict after the nap. And so laziness isn't going to work out for us. And at the same time, envy is not going to work out for us. Being angry that other people are happy and trying to organize our work schedule that way is not going to work out. But to have an ambitious vision of contentment where we say, God, you've made me, and you've made me to work and to rest, and you've made me for community, and I want all the good things that you've given me. Now that is an expression of wisdom. And then third, through a cooperative vision of work. So as I said before, so I say again, I worked at FedEx, not UPS. And I, the job that I did there would be summarized in three words, um, repair, reroute, and store. Those are the three things. So I repaired damaged packages, I rerouted packages that went to the wrong place, and then I would store packages that couldn't be delivered. And one of the busiest times of the year was when the city of Louisville, whenever the public schools there would go on spring break. Because if they're on spring break, you can't deliver the packages. So all the, all the, uh, the trucks would be backed up to their docks and they were all metal grates. And around spring break, you would hear ding, ding. You would hear just the, the rhyming and the chiming of the dock. You know, it's kind of taken off of Edgar Allan Poe's, the rhyming and the chiming of the bells. You would just hear the ding, the ding, 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 because you couldn't, you couldn't deliver those packages. And so we would have to get them and we have to store them. And then the next week we would ship them out. And I had a coworker who always took off of work spring break whenever Jefferson County Public Schools were on spring break. In fact, he would not only take off of work, he would come to me. We were buddies. Our relationship was strained during spring break because he'd come to me and he'd brag about how he was taking off of work during spring break. And then he would tell me about how he wasn't going to do any work and he's going to sleep in and, you know, so on and so on and so on. I remember saying to him at one point, I was like, you know, just don't, just don't talk to me. Like, just don't tell me that you're not going to do, you're not going to be here because it's one thing to have a whole bunch of extra work that's hard for that week. It's another thing to be short staffed. But anyway, I, my appeals to him didn't change his ways and he continued to do what he was going to do. And after that, I went and I worked at a hospital. And out in the hospital world, holidays and weekends are just things you've got to do when you've got to work some combination of holidays and weekends. <clears throat> but I had a guy that I worked with, and, he, and something he did with regards to how he did his schedule was he came to me. He had the chance to go to a baseball game. And he said, hey, Travis, I really want to go to this baseball game. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, it was, a, it was kind of a cool opportunity for him. And um, he said, hey, tell you what, my wife and I just had our first child. He said, I'll work. He's like, I'll work Christmas morning so that you can have time with your family on Christmas morning. If you'll walk, you know, you'll work this weekend for me to go to this baseball game. And I was like, oh, wow, sure. Um, now, just for the record, it's not easy to always be working holidays and weekends. But you know what? There's something much more meaningful whenever you have a relationship with somebody who approaches the schedule based on we and not just me. And so whenever 
whatever, work was difficult. Hey, you know what? I'm glad that my guy, I'm glad he got to enjoy himself with the, the baseball game. And you know what? You could imagine how grateful I was that he was working Christmas morning so that I could be at home with my family. And, and you have something like this in Scripture. Scripture recognizes that, that togetherness is better than loneliness, specifically with regards to work. So much so that, that Ecclesiastes will say in chapter 4, verse 8, he said that he saw a man, and there was a man that was all alone, and he had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless and a miserable business. So this man, he's either a bachelor or he's married and he has no children. But he's a compulsive moneymaker. He is always working. But do you see that he's like, why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? There was something missing. He had no one to share his wealth with. And so Ecclesiastes will say in verse 9, looking at this man's situation, two are better than one. And then it gives the reasons for that. Two are better than one because, well, we can share strength. Two are better than one because, because some sort of, because if one of them falls down, the other one can pick them up. So some sort of encouragement, some sort of ability to endure. Two are better than one, Ecclesiastes will say in this passage, because if one gets cold, the other one can keep them warm. So there's cooperation, there's encouragement, there's physical strength, there's protection. He says that two are better than one because if, if one tries to overpower the other, he can defend his friend or can defend whoever this person is that he's working alongside. Two are better than one. Ecclesiastes is saying, it's saying we're to, we're to work in such a way that we don't just think about, we don't just think about our own schedule. I mean, think about it. Like we, we acknowledge our own limitations. If you have people, people have a way of, of revealing your, your limitations. Let's say you're married. Your, your marriage will, will highlight the limitations in each one of your lives. That's part of the design of God. If you have friends, your friends will, will expose your limitations. If they're good friends, right? If they're good friends, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but, kiss, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful, right? Some, some point in time, if you have a good friend, they're going to hurt you in the short run for your long-term betterment. Why? Well, because you and I are limited. We're not God. And guess what? That's a good thing. God never made us to be God. God made us and he created us for community. Because togetherness is better than loneliness. And God knows that so well. God knows that so well that our Lord Jesus came and gave himself to the loneliness so that we could have togetherness. 
I mean, our Lord Jesus came and he embraced a lonely death. He embraced a lonely life. And he stepped into the loneliness so that people who were apart from God, who were separated from God, who were outside of his family, could be brought in together into the family of God so that they could have a God who is their father and so that they could have men and women who are brothers and sisters. And we reflect upon the fact that God in his wisdom saw to it that he wouldn't let us be so concerned about me that we would neglect the us and the we of the world that he sent Jesus to die for us. So the songwriter is right when they say, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. We know that from the word and we know it from the Lord's Supper because you see on the night when Jesus was betrayed, betrayed by one of his friends, he gave himself to the loneliness. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body and it's broken for you. It wasn't broken for him. It was broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine and after giving thanks, he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. For every time you eat from this bread and you drink from this cup, you announce the Lord's death until he returns. Like this meal symbolizes that we belong to the Lord and that he belongs to us. But it also symbolizes that we belong to each other. We are one family. And if you are a Christian, we welcome you to participate in the Lord's Supper. But I, I want to call you that this meal symbolizes unity. And if you are at aught with somebody, if you are at aught with somebody in this church, then please be reconciled to them. Because it's not about, it's not about me and you, but it's about us. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.